Today we're going to be talking about the ladies. Um, and joining me to talk about today, I have on two. Uh, hey, hey. I have Alistair. Greetings. And I have Saskia. Hello. So, yeah, so I guess, I mean, everybody's fairly fresh on this, so let's jump in. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if Alistair can remember the original, he can tell us the differences. But I'm guessing the original did not open at a southern church uh, with, or no, a southern sheriff's office. Uh, with someone going into a sheriff that is snoring extremely loudly. No, it is um, not. It is notably, noticeably not in Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have uh, George Wallace playing the uh, sheriff um, of this particular town uh, called Saucier. Saucier? I don't know how do you say that. Um, and he's obviously very asleep. And, you know, the idea being that this is a sleepy town where basically nothing happens. Um, and we are introduced to Marvin Munson, who is not happy with music that I know somebody in the street is playing. Is that what I'm? That's right. The it's, entire of this it's, it's the hippity hop that she doesn't like. Yes. Uh, what I find what I find funny about this script is obviously it is written for the screen by um, the Coen Brothers. And by the way, this is the first time that they are taking joint credits oh, for everything. Okay. It's normally. Normally, they would one of them would be credited as director, which I think was Joel, and the other would be credited as writer. But in this case, they're taking credit for both. Um, Possibly unwise. Well, the funny thing is, of course, because they did that on this film, when they did it for their next film, they were able to be joint nominated for uh, Best Director at the Oscars, which if they hadn't done on a previous film, they wouldn't have been able to do. So, um, you know, it helped them out in the medium term. Okay, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, so the the uh, the sheriff is played by George Wallace, who is a uh, I mean they say comedian. Um, I think there's a few things I've seen him in previously. I think I think he's best friends with Jerry Seinfeld. I may have misread that, but with Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, like you know they were like their buddies at the candy oh. cellar. You know when they came, they came yeah, up together. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, he was he was a uh, best man at his wedding apparently. Oh, okay. Uh, interesting yeah. fact about George Wallace: his birthday is the day before mine. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so yes. Uh, but I I mean I kind of in, like his his sheriff is only in like I don't know three scenes throughout this film. Uh, but I kind of enjoy how extremely lazy and unconcerned he is with everything. And, like, this is an elected position, but basically nobody else is ever going to run against him, so he just kind of lazies around. Um, to show you that the the cell uh, hasn't been used for so long, there is a spider web on the key that is in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, like, a great yeah. detail. Um, so, you know, what I will say about the Coen Brothers is, obviously, they are good directors, and they can direct a film well, so... Um, whether or not the content of the film ends up being good is entirely different. But, you know, there are some nice shots in this where it's establishing things. But then there's also a very, very dodgy CGI sky. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I don't know why Roger Deakins let that pass because, um, you know, you would think he would just wait. Wait, Deakins shot yeah. this? Oh, good, yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh cool. Uh, well, yeah, that explains a lot. It looks, looks great. <laughs> yeah, that is it. Well, you know, Roger Deakins, nominate for Christ knows how many Oscars. Um, what was it like thirty before he got actually before he finally got a win? 
Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think so. Did he win for nineteen seventeen? I think. Uh, but he was like one of the most. That rings a bell. No yeah, he's like he's like one of the most nominated like um, like uh, people in Oscar history because obviously you know everything he shoots he basically gets nominated for. Um, but yeah, so you know, like the film looks beautiful, but uh, you know, as I said, like whether or not it turns out to be a good film is it completely separate from that. But what I do like about this film, and I think uh, you know, a highlight that other people have pointed out is Irma P. Hall, um, who. I haven't seen anything before and I don't think yep. I've seen anything since. And, you know, she kind of, it's really weird because although this is obviously a Tom Hanks film, it'll take a, a take a, you know, a few minutes before Tom Hanks turns up. Um, and obviously we'll discuss his performance once we get there. Um, she is the most grounded <laughs> element of this where she is, you know, basically, um, you know, a, a woman who, you know, attends church and, you know, she, she's got a portrait of her husband hanging up, which obviously we'll discuss what happens with that <laughs> as the film goes on. Um, and, you know, she's just, you know, uh, somebody who, as we say, she isn't a fan of the hippity hop, which, again, uh, there's some stuff in the script where I think somebody should have said to the Coen brothers, um, I don't think you can be writing stuff like this because it just doesn't, like, maybe have somebody else take a second pass on it. Um, you know. <laughs> Uh, there's certainly a word that Quentin Tarantino favors using in his scripts that they seem to have liberally put into this, and I think they've just used the excuse that Marlon Wayans is present. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, I think she does a good performance as this person who is, you know, uh, what one might call a busybody, um, but you know, for good reasons. You know, she's like she's basically alone with her cat. And, you know, she gets bothered by the fact that yeah. people... Uh, she doesn't want to be subjected to hip-hop. Yeah. You um, know, when she's in that Which, you know, if you're an elderly woman, um, I, you know, unless you're, I don't know, Queen Latifah. I don't know how old Queen Latifah is. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think uh, she's, is, I don't think is, she's is, elderly. <laughs> I mean, I, she's been... She's been prof- leave, leave Queen <laughs> Latifah yeah, alone, Queen Latifah stands are coming for you, Darren. <laughs> I mean, she's 51. That's, that's you know, yeah. she's... That's not young, um, you know. Uh, yes, I, I guess theoretically she she may might be able to get a coffee discount. <laughs> at I mean, I'm looking forward to like in 30 years time where they remake the Lady Killers again, but this time with Queen Latifah. Oh, the, the... <laughs> As a, and and she's like making fun of a tribe called Quest because she was like their. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she hates whatever the modern music is um, of of yeah. the twenty fifties. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I I I'm really sorry. liked her performance. I don't know what, how anybody else feels about it, Irma P. Hall. I mean, throughout this film, no, she's know, she's really great, like bringing an earnestness to the film, and uh, and you know, she will have to be grounded because the rest of the cast are going to be playing. Cartoon characters is basically the only way to describe it. Um, yeah, so she she lodges a complaint with the sheriff about the noise, and we're kind of given to the fact that you know she she pesters the sheriff's department with kind of trivial things, and obviously this will mean you know once we get to the climax of the film, <laughs> uh, they basically don't take her seriously ever. Um, and so I think this is a nice way for them to kind of you know kind of put that in at the very beginning, so we know you know what kind of how they view her mm. um and of course uh, this is when a few minutes in we get to meet uh tom hanks uh star of the film gigantic face on the posters uh huge mustache <laughs> and soul patch uh combination going on uh playing goldthwaite higginson door phd 
And I mean, I, I think kind of like the whole, I mean, you know, obviously people call him GH um, and everybody refers to him as Dor for, for most of the rest of the film. Um, and he is somebody who is, uh, he's got his PhD in, uh, he says dead languages. Um, and obviously he talks a lot throughout the film about Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and for some reason, in addition to the mustache and the soul patch and the hair, uh, Tom Hanks, not, I mean, not only decided to make this person Southern, uh, but also then decided to add in a bunch of nervous tics where he laughs in odd ways. And I, I mean, it feels like a hat on top of a hat. On top of a hat. <laughs> like it's just, <laughs> it's like a lot of stuff going on all at once. Um, obviously, he's introduced, you know, to us uh, rescuing the cat that constantly gets out. Um, which is a good, it's a nice cat. I like that cat. It's a fun cat. Um, <laughs> you know, it will often just sit there and stare at things, which is, you know, obviously what you want, you know, just kind of uh, some kind of great cat acting. Um, it escapes up the tree. And this is, of course, where uh, Marva Munson reveals that she normally calls the police department to get the cat out of the tree. And obviously they're tired of doing that by now. Um, and so, of course, you know, Tom Hanks wanting to ingratiate himself to, uh, you know, Marvel Munson and also avoid attracting the attention of the police department. He rescues the cat from the tree by going up and breaking <clears throat> the branch and falling out of the tree. Um, and of course, we cut to black and he's then inside being tended to by Marvel Munson. Um, and this is his introduction. Um, you know, this kind of uh, the rescuing of the cat. And we find out that he is, you know, he's looking for a uh, a room which she is advertising at fifteen dollars a week, which it's even a good in two thousand four, that seems like a that's a reasonable price for a room, and it's a nice looking room as well. It's that's a decent size, like you know, uh, fifteen dollars a week uh, for lodgings. I mean, that's uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a bargain. Starting this film, I I had, I had no idea what it was going to be, uh, and it seems dated. You know, it could be set like <laughs> in the early fifties even, but then. You get these contemporary references to hip hop, and then the fifteen dollars a week for a room, like that's really super cheap. Like for yeah, the two thousands. Yeah, maybe this yeah. is a case of her being elderly, and like maybe is it is it un uncharitable to describe her as like mildly dotty to just like go as like fifteen dollars? That was a lot of money when I was growing up. That's still a lot of money in my head now. <laughs> I don't know. I would say that is very uncharitable to describe her that way. I think, <laughs> um, I th I think the fun here's the funniest thing, and this is, I mean, you know, this is a fact that you can tell all your friends at parties about the Coen brothers. Um, none of their films are contemporary. They never, if you if you think about any of their films, they all, like, even I think Raising Arizona is set, like, ten years before the film came out. Mm. So they rarely do a film that is actually set in the time that it happens. Um, you know, and so uh, in this case, this is the rare instance where there's actually a Coen Brothers film that is set in the present. Um, mm. And the same was true of Intolerable Cruelty. So mm. maybe this is why those two films are so bad is normally uh, the Coen Brothers. Isn't Burn After Reading set in I Kind day? of, yes. Except I don't think it is. I think it's set like a year before it takes place. Oh, okay. Because all, all like when, when, when they get to the end of the film, J.K. Simmons, obviously who will, will appear in this film very soon, um, he's like, what did we learn from this? And basically he's telling a story of an incident that happened earlier to this guy. So right. the, the entire film that you see is set in the past. Mm. Although only, you know, a few months before it happens, but it's still not present in the in the way that, you know, most films are. 
Um, whereas this film, yes, is set in the present, but at the same time, I think it is the fact that, you know, she's been a widow for 20 years and maybe she's not fully aware of, like, you know, inflation and price changes and whatever. <laughs> yes. So she's like, $15 <laughs> seems like, you know, that will bring enough money in for her, like $60 a month, you know, that's that's a reasonable amount of money for somebody who's on a fixed income. Yeah, is she partly, is she partly like, renting out the room because she's lonely? Oh. I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so because she seems to sit in the, her sitting room and have conversations with her her dead husband's ever changing portrait. So I think I'd rather be alone than have GH in my house. I'll be very honest with you. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, how as as the biggest Tom Hanks fan that I know, Saskia, how do you feel about creepy, creepy Tom Hanks? As oh, he is in this I film? mean. I to me he is so creepy and like the 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 last he does I hate every time he did it I hated it and I it, it was just, it was just weird for me seeing you know like a quote unquote villain Tom Hanks that was creepy because I'm so used to him being the sort of like lovable comedic I mean or just nice character so it was it was quite different and I didn't like it but, you know. <laughs> I mean, there is a maxim that I have, which is in every Tom Hanks film, his character pretty much always gets what he wants. <laughs> so if you think of any Tom Hanks film, going back to Splash, like at the mm. end of Splash, he's married to a mermaid and living in mermaid <laughs> town, wherever they've gone to. Uh, now he can breathe underwater, whereas previously, you know, he thought he couldn't swim. Um, you know, in Volunteers, he, he gets together with Rita Wilson, both on the film and in real life. Um, you know, in Big, he gets to be an adult for like a few weeks and then he goes back to being a child and he's got the rest of his life to live out, but he mm -hmm. already has the experiences of an adult. Um, you know, in Punchline, he loses the contest at the end, but Sally Field just walks out to go back to her husband and so he default wins. <laughs> you know, even though throughout the entire film, he's not a nice person. Um, you know, in The Burbs, he basically breaks into someone's house, destroys it. Um, and But in the end, he turns out to be correct. So nobody presses charges for him basically blowing up this house. So in every film, Tom Hanks is the, is the guy who basically gets whatever he wants. I mean, even in Philadelphia, his character dies, which is sad. But he gets five million from the company, you know, from the lawyers that, that fired him. So, you know, he just like it just Tom Hanks just gets what he wants. And I would say that's kind of true in this film. Uh, apart from obviously we'll discuss once we get towards the ending what happens there but like this this probably is the, one of the very few times that kind of subverts the idea that Tom Hanks gets whatever he wants uh, but yeah like that laugh is the thing that kind of like I mean I you know I mean like the performance is kind of enjoyable but just some of the stuff that he does it it's like I mean like like dial it down just a tiny bit I'm sure this is what the Coens want because they are notorious for having these kind of very larger than life characters um, but you can't do that and then have um, as we see, his kind of gang of thieves assemble and they're all more cartoonish than the previous one. And it's, <laughs> it's just kind of insane. Like, you know, um, we know the first that we meet is Marlon Wayans, who is working on um, a casino boat, uh, which we will find obviously, find out later is, is parked very close to uh, this house. Um uh, we see J.K. Simmons working on a dog food advert with a very brief cameo from both Greg Grunberg and Bruce Campbell. And he accidentally <laughs> kills a dog by putting a gas mask on it um, because, he, you know, the, it's, it's set in for some reason. It's set in like a world war where this dog like eats some treats 
And to make that clear, they put like a canteen on the dog, but it fell off. Um, so he had an idea to put a gas mask on instead because that's more. But of course, then they're like, how is the dog going to eat the snacks? And he's like, well, OK, yeah, it's I the easiest the thing in the world, Darren. Easiest thing in the yeah, world. Well, yeah. Yeah, so he is, he's, he's goth pancake. I mean, <laughs> you know, Marlon Wayans is playing Gawain McSam. Like, I mean, you know, like, uh, when we meet Ryan Hurst, we'll find out that his character is Lump Hudson. Like, I don't, I don't know what, I do not know what the Coen brothers were thinking about, but they just, there is literally no subtlety in anything here. No. Uh, and the fact that, like, Diane Delano is playing Mountain Girl, <laughs> Which I is... I love Mountain Go. She might <laughs> yeah. be she might be my yes. favorite character. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, she should really advise Garth Pancake that you can't put a you know a mask on a dog because it will basically suffocate to death. Um, <laughs> and maybe hitting ex- well, spoiler alert. We'll get into that in a minute. But certain things are unwise. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So you know, we we get to see uh, the introduction of Lump Hudson through the 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 kind of the the helmet. I love um, that. We... That was fun. Yeah. Um, and the weirdest thing is, like Ryan Hurst, who plays uh, Lump Hudson. Um, he was previously in uh, Remember the Titans, um, and he was in Saving Private Ryan <laughs> with uh, with Tom Hanks. Mm. So they have worked together before. But in Remember the Oh yeah, he plays. The, the guy that can't hear. Yes. He, he's slightly deaf from the explosion or whatever. Yes. Uh, uh, but the, the funniest thing is in Remember the Titans, he plays a guy called Jerry Bertier, who uh, his character in that is extremely racist. Um, but then he becomes less racist. And then he gets into a car accident and he's paralyzed. Um, so I don't know if that's justice or whatever. But yeah, Remember the Titans is a fun film. Of course, starring Denzel Washington, who was in Philadelphia. With Tom Hanks. Oh man, uh, so many connections. Uh, I, yes, I, I will say the sequence with uh, with Lump playing football. I thought that was like, oh, this is a Coen Brothers yeah. film. Like, even with something ped- pedestrian like the film uh, is, yeah, I just thought, oh well, like they gave him a lot of money and they could do whatever they wanted. It was pretty yeah. neat. Uh, the funniest thing about that is at the end we see the football coach uh, who is played by <laughs> Blake Clark. And uh, Blake Clark was in The Waterboy, where he plays the extremely Southern guy who's incomprehensible, who nobody could understand. <laughs> um, so I thought it was a nice touch just to have him mm-hmm. show up here very briefly as like a football coach. Yeah, I really like um, that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we also get this kind of, again, like it feels completely weird for the Coen brothers to do this, but... Like the ro- robbery at the donut shop where you have, um, you know, these two uh, young African-American men come in and threaten um, the uh, the owners of the store, one of whom will be the general, uh, played by Seymour. And um, I, I just like the whole scene where they're like holding the guns up and then he like grabs the, the one guy by his nostril <laughs> and then his wife throws coffee over the other guy and like he kind of stumbles out. And I guess, uh, you know, obviously the idea is to show that uh, the general is, while he's a quiet um, Asian gentleman with a Hitler mustache, he's constantly smoking. Again, a a hat on top of a hat on top of a hat on top of a Hitler mustache. Um, Like, it's just it's just too much. Like, I mean, if you're going to have this kind of I mean, I don't know. I mean, on two, I feel you can bring some insight into this. Is this a stereotype? I don't know. Like. It's, I, I, 
I, I don't know. Like, I think the the film in and of itself is so large that it's not like just even uh, thinking about the caricatures of Southerners. Like, the Tom Hanks character is like a sort of enlarged stereotype of the Southern gentleman. I I know. I think with the general, uh, it's. It's interesting. I will, I will put it that way. It's it's an interesting choice. Yeah, I mean, I th- I th- I think obviously like the whole thing of him like kind of like always smoking. Uh, obviously, it pays off mm-hmm. at the end. Um, but it's just like it, it like it's just one of those weird things where it's like oh okay like I mean, it is true that like I don't know seventy percent of Chinese men smoke. So ah, oh, but he's um, <laughs> he's Vietnamese. Yes. Yes. Film. Again, I have thing. committed racism there by just <laughs> blending the entire Asian diaspora into one person. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the whole, I, the whole. Th- I, you know, it is just kind of just. I mean, again, like I, I kind of understand what the Coens are going for, but like throwing a Hitler mustache in there at the end is just like, what is that even? <laughs> it's a choice. What is that even meant? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, he rarely talks throughout the film, so. Um, but yeah, and uh, you know, we then, you know, that is the crew: Marlon Wayans, J.K. Simmons, um, you know, Seymour and uh, Ryan Hurst, um, and uh, they kind of they answer an advert uh, that that has been placed by uh, by G.H. Dorr, and you know, they kind of gather at the house. The excuse is that they are going to be playing musical instruments um, that are from the Renaissance period, which includes a sackbut. And um, various various different types of stringed instruments. Of course, they can't play these instruments, um, and this will become a, a running joke throughout the rest of the film. There is an interesting thing on the DVD about the guy who made these instruments because all of them are handmade, and that that kind of triple necked guitar thing that uh, the general has um, that was made from scratch. Like that isn't an existing instrument that like they rented from someone or something. There's a guy who basically just built that entirely (laughs) and it took him like months to kind of (laughs) get the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of effort for stuff that's on screen and barely plays any place in the plot. But like, you know, there's a whole like 15 minute, like behind the scenes thing um, about the guy who, who made them. And he, you know, he he makes, he made guitars for like George Harrison and Ray Cooder. And, you know, like he's, he's just made Like he's made guitars for various famous people throughout the years. So he's, you know, obviously an expert in instruments. And so they had him come on to make all these stringed instruments. (laughs) Um, And also he made all the cases as well that they, they kind of bring out of this hearse, Uh, which again, I think the hearse is a nice touch. Like that again, (laughs) it feels like something the Coen brothers do is like, for some reason, they're driving the hearse around, which I'm guessing is foreshadowing. Uh, but also, it kind of it it, it can you know obviously Marvin Munson sees it and she thinks somebody is dead, <laughs> and and uh, yeah. oh, this leads Door to kind of explain, no, 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 you know, it's just like it's a convenient way to carry around these large instruments. Uh, obviously, uh, later on, it is meant to be for them to haul away the money. That is way they've got themselves a hearse. But I do like that he kind of explains it in this way. Um, and you know the idea that they are kind of musicians who play music that nobody wants to listen to from the period <laughs> of music. Like, I mean, I was having studied music myself. Like, rococo music is just kind of very boring and repetitive. And you know, I mean, I guess I don't know. Sting making an album of like songs from that period or something. Maybe people would enjoy it, or but, or at least you know, buy it because it's Sting. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I like this cover of them being a band. I don't know if that's from the original film. It is. I mean, you know, it is. There we go. See, that makes sense because it like it. But at the same time, I feel like the Coen Brothers have taken it to the next level by having these very weird instruments. Um, uh, yeah, what sort of music uh, they supposedly play in the original I, film? To be honest, I don't remember. I don't remember it being a. I don't remember it being a <laughs> plot point in such in such a way. Like the, the, it's just they're musicians and they need a practice space, and that's how you can justify these strange middle-aged men meeting in this house. But I don't think they make an issue of what mm. kind of music they play. But it's probably been two years since I saw the film, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, cool. in 1955, it would have been contemporary enough for them to play rock and roll. Uh, yeah, but that is with that uh, is... Rock, rock around the clock. I think it was 1954. So, yeah, but I don't, I don't think they would have done that. No, because they're they're not like they're middle aged men, so they're they're probably not going to be like. I don't, teen, I don't know how to break teenage, I, uh, teenage twenty years twenty years year old music. Alistair, I don't know how to break this to you, but Bill Haley, when he was in Bill Haley and the Comets, singing "Rock Around the Clock," he was in his late forties. Oh my goodness! He, young man. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> he was a very old guy who right, slicked his right, hair right, with right. a lot of grease to make himself look like younger. Was, so. Yeah, at least semi-plausible, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. So I mean, you know, once they're, they 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 kind of lay out the idea, uh, the plot of the film, if you will directly to us because it's the easiest way to do it uh they lay out the plans uh the casino boat has effectively an onshore lockbox uh because there exists an american law where in this particular state uh you cannot gamble on land so of course to get around it they just made boats that are casinos yeah uh boats that don't really go anywhere they just sit next to a particular place and everybody just goes and gambles uh because that is how american laws work people will go to extreme lengths to try and get around them. Um, I'm sure they could have passed another law saying you can't gamble on water either, but I guess that seems a bit ridiculous. No, saying you can't gamble on on water is just vindictive. (laughs) Yeah, uh, you can't gamble in the air either. Um, You know, just in case people start having casino planes. Yeah. Uh, Which, now I I say it, that would be a great title for a film. Um, Yeah, so connected to this boat is a... uh, Snake eyes on a a plane. (laughs) <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, con- connected to the to the the boat is this lockbox, which is you know surrounded by concrete. It's underground. Uh, I like that it te- like they demonstrate each of the different skills of the the various people because obviously Gawain is the inside man. Um, we have uh, you know Garth Pancake who will be uh, blowing stuff up. Um, we have the general who uh, looks at the wall and he's obviously, which is made of, um, uh, I don't know, like earth. And so he's like, he's going to tunnel through there. Yeah, he's the tunnels um, guy. Yeah. And then we have Lump, um, who is not very intelligent, basically. <laughs> he's the muscle. Uh, yeah. And I think it's funny because the, we go to this, like, we obviously have, um, uh, you know, Tom Hanks doing this very over the top performance of somebody who kind of speaks in extremely long sentences for every single thing that he says, even if it's the most simplest of things. And I like how he's trying to get Lump to understand where the lockbox is, and he kind of just points to the <laughs> the map, and he still doesn't understand what's going on, really. Um, and he keeps calling him Coach, uh, <laughs> which I thought was a nice touch that is a, yeah, uh, from Ryan Hurst. Uh, 
is is the ringleader in the original film is he an academic as well yeah i think his i I think they all refer to him as the professor so he's certainly posing as an academic (laughs) and his character is very much like this sort of erudite you know scrupulously polite man like i i think tom hanks is is kind of doing an impression of alec guinness doing that character but at the same time making him southern Mm. and like turning it up to like 12 or 13 yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah uh i I mean yeah so i mean the plan is kind of simple which is they're going to tunnel into the lockbox uh they're gonna explode well they're gonna get through the wall by using uh, Gawain as their inside man to kind of uh, break through uh once they're in there they're gonna take all the money uh they're gonna bring it back to under this house and then they're gonna blow up the tunnel to collapse it uh obviously to get to the actual lockbox there's also gonna be some uh some rock that they're gonna have to blow up but obviously we'll talk about that later um and when when they get interrupted by Marva they all have to kind of very quickly uh, get out of the tunnel uh, cover it up and then sit there with their instruments um, and I like how you know she's in, she's coming downstairs because she's got her husband's fife and uh, you know she's kind of uh, you know talking she wants to talk to uh, the professor about that I should say as well between like Tom Hanks and Irma P. Hall they have like a very kind of fun relationship where um, you know like the fact that he talks in kind of long sentences kind of charms her a little bit um, you know and I do think that like kind of the scenes between them uh, do kind of work but you know that's I think mostly because they both kind of understand um, how to kind of interact with each other and obviously Tom Hanks is a good actor so mm. even under a mountain of various <laughs> gimmicks you can still kind of manage to get a good performance um, but I, but really I feel it only kind of works in these kind of smaller moments you know like he I do like that like he he's like she thinks they're about to play something and he goes well we are about to take a break and they all start putting their instruments away like literally the instant she comes in because obviously they can't play their instruments um but i like how how kind of quickly he takes that and then he leaves to go upstairs so obviously that the guys can kind of continue doing whatever they're doing um and when they talk about her you know her husband and you know how he's been gone for 20 years and you know this was his fife and he kind of carved it himself and you know burned the holes into it and everything um, you know, it does feel like a kind of a more genuine moment in the film where, you know, he's kind of connecting. Um, and also we should then talk about this portrait of the husband, which um, throughout the film will change expressions depending on what is going on. Um, they clearly liked that joke because they use it so yeah. many times. Yeah, they go back to it a few times throughout the film. But what's funny is the same joke is used in Knives Out, mm. where the portrait of... Um, the guy who was killed. What's his name? <laughs> I can't even remember now. Uh, it's been so long since I saw any part of that film. You mean Christopher? Yeah, the Plummer. character played by Christopher Plummer. There's a portrait in that which is digitally yep. altered throughout the film. So the depending who's sitting in front of it, the expression changes, and by the end he's smiling uh, because obviously he's happy that you know. Spoiler alert: Marta has got the money. Um, I really need but, to yeah. see Knives Out. Everyone uh, tells uh, me how uh, good it is, and I've just not gotten to it. Oh well. <laughs> Oh uh, no! Uh, you should see it. It's yeah, really it's great. Uh, I I should say that I did not notice the portrait changing at all <laughs> during I, the film. I know I know I know. <laughs> I didn't it notice right that. at the very end, and I was like, "Oh, it's this expression change." So yeah, there's you. a point where he's he's kind of smiling, and there's a point where he's kind of frowning, and yeah, the, I mean, it's not. I think the last couple of changes are super obvious because the expression is so different <laughs> from what we've seen previously. 
Uh, but the kind of changes are a bit more subtle throughout the film until until we kind of get to the final kind of does final it, shots. Does of it does that changing portrait mean that this technically counts as a magical realist film? <laughs> uh, no, it means that the Coens like a good joke, um, and that's one that they put into this film. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, uh, we also find out at this point we've we've kind of we've seen Gawain at the the casino boat. Uh, there are a couple of characters that are there. There's there's like his co-worker who kind of is also a janitor who's kind of showing him around. There's this guy who I, is he a security guy who just kind of sits and laughs in the office and gets um, made fun of by his rather cruel co-workers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, basically, he was there just for one joke that they do later on, um, and then and then there is uh, Stephen Root showing up uh, with a wig. I'm assuming uh, because I don't recall Stephen Root having a head of hair like that, um, uh, and he is the, the the kind of manager of the casino boat. Um, you know, obviously, he will work with the Coens. Um, you know, later on. Um, but I don't think he ever works with Tom Hanks ever again. So mm. I don't know what Stephen Root did to uh, to Tom Hanks to never work with him ever again. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Stephen Root, but he also had a rough 2004 because after this he did Jersey Girl and Surviving Christmas. So, I mean, uh, but the funny thing is in 2004, the first time that I saw Stephen Root was in Dodgeball, huh. uh, a true underdog story. So, uh, yeah, Um but, uh, you know, uh, the, the, like he fires Gawain and Gawain then kind of says that it's because he's black, <laughs> which it obviously wasn't. It was because he had sex with somebody who came onto the casino boat. We do see a shot of the of him following her, staring at her behind. Um, and then he kind of keeps making excuses about like how great her behind was. And As you if know, that's nobody could resist. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it's funny because like, this obviously then leads to the confrontation in the Waffle Hut, uh, where they're arguing over the involvement of Mountain Girl. Um, this may and... be a controversial opinion, but I love yes. the scene in the Waffle Hut. <laughs> I like... No, it's it's not controversial from my point of view. I I just think Gawain in the scene, some of his lines just really, I just they really cracked me up. I especially like. You brought your bitch to the Waffle Hut. <laughs> I keep I, saying it. I know, and like that just tickled me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm guessing Waffle Hut is like an actual place in America, and it was just like, I, mean, I guess we're getting product placement for, <laughs> mentioned in the restaurant well, multiple times. I think house. Yeah, I think Waffle House is what it's alluding to. I don't think there is a Waffle Hut, but you know, there might be like two or three tiny waffle places somewhere in the American uh, continent where somebody calls it a waffle hut. Um, but yeah, it feels like it is a reference to a waffle house more than anything else. But yeah, I mean, the argument, I think obviously the, the, the whole point is between Gawain and, um, you know, uh, Garth Pancake, there is this tension throughout the whole film where the two <laughs> yeah. of them are constantly arguing. They were arguing when they were kind of discussing the plan. They're arguing now at the Waffle Hut over the fact that uh, Mountain Girl is being referred to as a bitch. But I, the fact that she's referred to as Mountain Girl, I think, is more problematic than calling her a bitch. I mean, she's she's not a girl. She's a woman. Uh, at least call her Mountain Woman. Um, but yeah. Uh, I, I, I googled it while I was watching the yes. film and there is an actual Mountain Girl. Uh, it's it's referring to uh, Jerry Garcia's like ex-wife. Uh 
she was called Mountain Girl during the 60s, so I assume it's like oh, a, okay. she's like a hippie-ish woman, and she's like driving a Volkswagen uh, van later, and uh, yeah, that oh, all made sense so to me. So it's like a reference that deep in joke meant... for those who know. <laughs> nice, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, for deadheads. Yeah. Uh, one thing I loved about the Waffle Hut scene was just how <laughs> after like uh, Grain pulls a gun and everything is resolved, like. She's just weeping into Pancake's shoulder. It's just like a really nice touch. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's a fun scene. Um, again, I mean, I'm not a fan of people who argue in films because the argument is kind of dumb. And then every argument they have after this, again, is dumb and could easily be resolved. But I guess you've got to have two people arguing. There has to be a conflict. Um, That's the rules of drama. I guess, yeah. Um, and we get what we get again. The sheriff pops back up uh, in what I thought was quite a humorous scene, where um, you know uh, Goldthwait doesn't want to be spotted by the sheriff. So uh, you know he's talking about how much he likes books, and you know obviously um, you know Marva is talking about how much he likes the Bible, and you know there's a bit of discussion about that. And then when the sheriff turns up, um, you know G H hides um, very quickly and. <laughs> You know, Marva goes to show GH to the sheriff, but he's no longer in the sitting room. So then she goes up to his bedroom where he's, you know, hiding under the bed. Yeah, and he's and... very much like, do I have to? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, this, this is the funny thing. Obviously, the sheriff isn't that concerned with what she's talking about. But the funny thing is everything that she describes about uh, Goldthwaite makes him sound like he doesn't exist. <laughs> like it's also cartoonish <laughs> yes. and crazy. Um, you know, talking about how he's a professor and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And like, it just doesn't make any sense. And then when she's like on the ground laughing at the fact that he's under the bed, um, the sheriff obviously just thinks she's crazy. And then he's like, my beep has gone off. I've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> he just like leaves. Um, I, I didn't I, know if that's the reaction she would have had by finding him under the bed. I, I yeah. wasn't sure why she found it so funny. I thought she would have been like, what are you doing? Yeah, I think she, I think she, maybe she found it so funny because he was drinking the tea under the bed. That was the thing that kind of made it humorous to her. Uh, but yeah, that is a weird reaction. But it just makes her look like a crazy person That's laughing on the floor. True. Yeah, um, and I and I, I think it's it's funny to her because she's going from room to room looking for this person, and by the time she finds him like under the bed, it's so absurd. Yeah, it's and she's charmed by his eccentricity. So this is just this is just a weird <laughs> kooky thing that he'll do. But that's why that's sort of oh, part Tom of his Hanks. Whole, part, what will what will he do next? <laughs> yeah, it it is actually uh, funny when you think about it because like when people hide under beds uh, in in movies, generally it's a horror <laughs> film, and this scene is actually pretty tense because you're like. Is George Wallace going to leave or not? And you're mostly on Tom Tom Hanks' side at this point. So it, I found it pretty tense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the funny thing is, obviously, when he gets out, he's like, oh, yeah, this is what they do at, like, top colleges. People hide in, <laughs> in phone boxes. And <laughs> yeah. he just comes up with this list of excuses as to why he was under the bed. Uh, yeah, which, it, again, she it's, doesn't it's really a, care about. Yeah. And she just goes, oh, well, you know, he sounds like a man who knows what he's talking about. So... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he does tell some tall tales with like, con- he he sells them even though they're very implausible. Uh, we find out obviously that you know they need their inside man to be inside. Otherwise, what is the point of having him there? Um, he's, no, he's an outside man. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I think that before, just before this, though, is the scene where um, Marva goes downstairs and she just keeps slapping um, uh, Marlon Wayans in the face. Um, and there <laughs> yeah. is a DVD bonus extra that tells you, like, that basically just has all the slaps. And apparently she slapped in like 40 or 50 times <laughs> during that scene. They just kept oh, doing wow. it. Um, I mean... And she, there were a few times where she kind of slapped him and he kind of like stumbled and fell over and stuff. <laughs> Um, the Coen brothers just loved like Marlon Wayans getting slapped. Um, I mean, and who? without giving away too much my feelings about Marlon Wayans' character in this film, I can I can understand why they might want to, you know, just keep slapping him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I found this bit probably like the first time I laughed out loud during it. I just thought it was hilarious. Like this old woman dressing down Marlon Wayans, like, as he's trying to defend himself and excuse himself, each, with like each <laughs> just slap. making it worse for himself. Yeah. What? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, when is of all? Uh, recently, I saw Marlon Wayans in the film Respect, uh, where he was the one doing the slapping, not getting slapped. So, hmm. uh, wait, who is he playing in Respect? He plays the husband of Aretha like, Franklin. Oh, <laughs> Aretha's husband. Yeah, okay. I know. A weird choice. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, an abusive husband, one should say. Um, although, of course, in real life, the guy disputed it. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of obvious. Uh, but, yeah, so we get Gawain apologising to Mr. Gudge, uh, played by Stephen Root, uh, by giving him some chocolates with a card that's got $100 in. <laughs> uh, a scheme that was come up with by Lump, where he's like, can't we just bribe the guy? <laughs> you know? And it works. Uh, he gets his job it, back. It's... Uh... It's Tom Hanks who suggests to like, oh, like a, a box of chocolates might soothe, like, yeah. <laughs> soothe over his bad feelings. I couldn't help but think of <laughs> yes. Forrest Gump. That does Just feel like it's a nod box of chocolate to Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, along with the fact that for some reason, halfway through this film, they play ping pong for like 30 minutes. And I was like, what's going on? Well, it's, obviously, it's just a reference to Tom. Uh, yeah, so uh, the apology works. He gets his job back and, you know, they've they've hit some uh, some rock uh, between the house and the casino lockbox. And so they have to blow it up. Um, and to get uh, Marva out of the house, uh, you know, uh, GH has come up with some tickets to this performance and she's going to take her friend. Uh, I can't remember the actress who played her friend, but uh, I thought she was great. She was like, <laughs> like even more charmed than Marva by... Everything that GH was saying, which I just thought was a, a great interaction between the two of them, like when he kind of takes her, 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 her like arm and, uh, you know, he's just kind of telling them a, a casual story as they leave the house. And then there is a gigantic explosion behind them because in <laughs> uh, explaining how to do the explosions, Pancake has accidentally blown off his finger. Um, and so, um, what's funny is like, they basically, they, you know, um, Marva and her friends sit in the taxi and she just says they're musicians and her friend goes, mm-hmm. And I just thought that was like a nice, like her friend doesn't believe that they're musicians. And I don't think at this point Marva does. Yeah. Um, I thought this was the first point Marva was starting to think like, what is actually going on in my house? <laughs> Something is up. Yeah. I'm not that yeah. bothered, but maybe I should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, uh, obviously Tom Hanks runs back into the, the house and they, you know, the kind of a dazed crew come up and uh, J.K. Simmons is bleeding because he's blown off one of his fingers. 
which leads Marlon Wayans to go on a long rant, which uh, feels the most out of place of anything in any Coen Brothers movie ever, where he describes the events of the Lorena Bobbitt uh, <laughs> oh, cutting off her husband's penis. And, and then, of course, his reattachment of his penis and then his entry into pornography. Um, so all of that is described by Marlon Wayans while everybody else is kind of shouting about this finger being like, you know, bleeding and the explosion and everything. And where is the finger? Uh, yeah, where is the and <laughs> yep. and I I think I think I I mean I'm guessing the Coen brothers were just like to Marlon Wayans just kind of like riff on the idea of uh, Lorraine or Bobby. Lorraine yeah. Bobby. Um another abusive husband of course uh, deserved to have his penis cut off in my opinion um, but yeah I mean like it's just such a weird kind of detour that he's doing this while everybody else is just going on about the finger. Um, and the explanation that will be given is obviously they they hit a gas line. That's like the, you know, or a pocket of gas or something. Uh, again, I don't think Marv is buying it at this point. Um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, I, what I think is funny is that, that kind of J.K. Simmons, when in the next scene, when they're like, you know, his hand is all kind of bandaged up and obviously he points to something so that we can see his bandaged hand missing the finger. Um, he then talks about how, you know, he wants like workman's comp because of his finger being blown <laughs> and everybody else is like... Everyone else is like, no, this is a criminal enterprise. You don't get workman's comp. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, okay, you know, it was just a test balloon. I guess <laughs> nobody's... Like, and I just, I, I don't know. I think as well, that's, it's kind of interesting because I think, you know, in a competent Coen Brothers film, that would be the seed of what he does later on being sown, the fact that they don't want to give him workman's comp. But in this film, it just feels like it's being played off as like, you know, some kind of gag about him requesting compensation and then kind of just not being given it well and also his character just being a kind of whiny guy who sort of like <laughs> you know will stand up for himself enough to put the idea out there but then won't actually follow through on it yeah and then we'll pretend I, I, it was just a suggestion when he doesn't get his way yep I think it's funny as well because out of everybody, like obviously, you know, uh, you know, Pancake and Gawain are the two who kind of talk the most, mm. um, and obviously they're still in conflict at this point, um, which leaves kind of like the general and Lump to kind of just stand there and not say very much for the whole film, and I think yeah. that was an interesting mm. choice to kind of you know deliberately have these two kind of people who are always talking and then this these other two people who barely say anything. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, they have a plan, which is they're going to, uh, you know, break into the, the lockbox um, while Marva is at church and then recover all the money. Um, and part of the plan that I hadn't realized, but when it happened, I was like, oh, yeah, then that, that makes sense. Uh, the reason why uh, Gawain is the inside man is he's going to do some bricklaying and some plastering after they exit. That um, seemed to come out of nowhere for me. <laughs> When yeah, he, I, when he started just bricklaying, I was like, "When did he? <laughs> when did he learn to do this?" And he is very good at it. He, he, he it's so good, so neat. And considering everything yeah. else we see about this character, him being that competent at that is quite surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It did. I, I mean, I, it felt like it wasn't properly explained. Like, you know, like. Yes, go for it, Auntie. Are you going to tell us there was a whole scene that we missed where <laughs> they explained? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I thought it was uh, okay. You know, it's just like a, a common trope in heist films. Like the characters know the plan, but the audience 
doesn't so it's the element of surprise i i think i think it totally works for me like you know he was doing a he was just bricking up a wall he's like he seemed like a blue collar guy so it's totally plausible yeah i mean i i, I guess but it's just one of those weird things i mean not not to downplay bricklaying either you know uh in my day job i do work with people in the trades and it takes a it takes a few years for people to be a, a competent bricklayer. Oh, yeah. And the same is true of plastering as well. Like he plasters that wall straight away. Um Yeah, it looks it looks like a film. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Look, like, like it's it's I, probably not that hard to do a bad job at it, but to do a really neat job probably yeah, takes like, some practice. <laughs> yeah, so to get good at both of those trades, you know, he he could just be making a lot more money as a bricklayer or a plasterer, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, with. Like, yeah. Breaking <laughs> into wrong banks in and being a, a janitor <laughs> seems like I mean you know if you've got the skill to do those trades, I've, that's where you should be making the money. Uh, but yeah, so you know the, obviously they they get in, they take all the money. He starts putting the bricks back in place and plastering it. And to be honest, that is like a really funny thing that basically all this money is going to disappear and it's just going to look like it vanished and there's not going to be an explanation. <laughs> and I think that's quite that's like that's you know that's a that's a good plan and also a humorous afterthought that nobody will be able to explain where the money went like that's you know that is a that's a that's a nice thing that seems to be part of the fun i think like sorry Antu. go for it Antu. no no i uh i i just thought the highest element of this film was like oh this is pretty exciting and charming to me it's like yes get the money (laughs) Yeah, and also, uh, should be, I mean, you know, uh, we're taking a long time to talk about this, but it should be said, uh, this is like an hour into a 90-minute film. <laughs> They've pretty much got the money. Like, uh, we're two-thirds in. When I looked at the running time, I was like, "This is this correct? Like, what's going on? How? Like, what's going to be happening? Obviously, there is a basically a second film that is going to happen for the final 30 <laughs> minutes of this film. Um, but Can I, uh, I just wanted to ask Alistair, like, uh, what is the heist in the original film? Do you know what? This will sound like, have you really seen this film? And it's just a testament to my my extremely okay, fe- I, I, fickle I just memory. Feel- <laughs> but I don't. The thing I remember about the film is more. It's more just like the creepiness of Alec Guinness. I don't remember that many of the specifics about the plot. But okay. I, I think it's 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 just. I think it's a way more like run of the mill than like this kind of elaborate like, um, like gambling boat heist i because I, I think it's like because this is what an hour and 45 and the original's like mm-hmm. it's literally 90 minutes so they're just everything is just less elaborate and i think that works in its favor of in terms of the original but yeah but the the professor is still creepy <laughs> oh he is he is so much more creepy and it's really right, hard okay. to put your finger on what it is about him that is so creepy because he is like Tom Hanks in this, he is very genial, very polite, but there's just something super off about him. And if, like, for no other reason, like, if you, if you, obviously, like, ev- everyone knows Alec Guinness from the original Star Wars movies, just, like, watch The Lady Killers <laughs> and, um, and Kind Hearts and Coronets just to see what he could do, like, given, like, like a whole film to be the, the main feature in because he's so funny and so good um also that i mean in a in a film with herbert lom he's the creepy one well I mean... herbert lom is is creepy in a very different way because he <laughs> herbert lom is like the in that it's like the sort of like the like more stereotypical like heavy gangster 
guy and he's like the most antagonistic um but yeah it's just something there's just something kind of like sickly and like uh off about him which like i do enjoy tom hanks's performances in this but there's just still like an element of Tom Hanks cuddliness about it, which <laughs> kind of works against it. Maybe you disagree, Saskia, as the as the Hanks connoisseur, but um, yeah, I guess. But I, I guess also from a from a woman's point of view, men like that just freak creep me out. Even you know the ones that are like the nice guys, but you can tell that he's probably got a really sordid side to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he does keep he does keep reciting Edgar Allan Poe at every like the drop of a hat. So yeah, and apparently all these southern ladies love it. <laughs> mm, yeah, and, yes. And po, uh, po, didn't Poe like marry his like cousin when she was thirteen or something? Yeah, I think. so. I don't know. Maybe you're confusing him with uh, uh, Jerry know, Lee a dozen Lewis. Other people <laughs> that were famous. <laughs> yeah, I mean that married their cousins. Um, but yeah, uh, well, I mean, speaking of Poe, obviously, uh, you know, their plan was to get all the money while Marvel was at church, but she comes back early from church. Um, and at the same time, uh, Garth Pancake has IBS and J.K. Simmons's face makes this well known to everybody. It's weird because I think it takes up until this point in the film where this suddenly appears as an affliction. <laughs> it, um, it, and when it does... It's foreshadowed earlier because... J- during one of their previous arguments, yeah. like there's this loud groan, <laughs> just for no reason. It's yeah, not commented I, on. Yeah, but the, the like the weirdest thing is like he he goes to the he goes to the toilet in casino, the casino, which is like a bad thinking, idea. Oh. Like I figured they would have. Well, I'm thinking is somebody going to catch them, but nobody catches no, them in the casino. <laughs> he just goes to the toilet. It's just I a, just figured like it's just a visit to the at toilet. At the end, there was going to be like okay, we we saw you on the cameras using the toilet. Like why were you there? Mm, yeah, Mr. but uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so as as Marva is returning, um, uh, the tunnel uh, like does not collapse, um, and so uh, J.K. has to go back in uh, to try and fix the the timer, and then uh, the timer is fixed, but it's it's going to go off in like ten seconds. So he quickly has to try and get out of the tunnel. Uh, but also he's having another attack of IBS. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's he's kind of uh, making faces basically at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I feel like in a different Coen Brothers film, the tunnel collapses on him and he dies in a gruesome way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as it is, he gets blasted out of the tunnel. And this is just before all the church ladies are arriving for their afternoon tea. Um, and... You know, obviously, Marva goes down and she sees all this money flying all over the place. <laughs> and she, she wants some kind of explanation, but she hasn't got the time right now because all of the church ladies have appeared. And uh, she asks that the band play some music, but obviously, they say um, that Gawain is missing, so they cannot play uh, any more than a horse missing a leg could canter. <laughs> and so uh, they just he, he decides to recite an Edgar Allan Poe poem, and all of the uh, church ladies are taken uh, by this recital <laughs> for some reason. Move, move um, to tears. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a really weird thing. Um, but it, it is weird. I, like, what I should say as well, going to a place expecting music to be performed for you, and like, then the musician <laughs> saying, "Okay, I'm just gonna recite this poem," and that's like a decent enough substitute. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's just as good. <laughs> yeah, um, I should say as well the uh, the fiddle that um, uh, that uh, GH doesn't play um, has got a little raven's head uh, on the headstock mm. at the top. Oh, uh, I did not spot detail. that. You, I mean, you wouldn't because it's on screen for about three seconds. Oh, okay. Uh, but obviously, I watched a behind the scenes thing, so uh. that's how I knew it. Uh, but I thought you're that was really a nice getting yeah, your the... money's worth from that DVD you bought <laughs> oh years ago. Yeah, yeah. You didn't oh, no, watch I mean... it for ten years, but now you're just going to watch every damn thing on it. <laughs> I, there's, well, there's only three like short bonus things on there, um, so I watched them all. Uh, but yeah, uh, and after the church ladies leave, this is where we get the explanation uh, where he says that the money is. Uh, Garth pancakes because he doesn't trust financial <laughs> institutions, and <laughs> and the explosion was some ga- a gas main that was set off by the general lighting it was a cigarette. Natural gas, and, yeah, natural gas, which, a pocket of natural gas, which he says had a smell, but natural gas has no smell. Mm. Uh, the smell is added as a safety precaution. That's right. So that's how we know that's a lie. Um, but yeah, so he he comes up with all this, and obviously. Um, she doesn't believe him. <laughs> so, well, because so. apparently they were digging to find something for Lump that he was collecting as well. Uh, yes, Lump. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So Lump found an arrowhead, and that is why they decided to dig. And they hit a pocket of natural gas, which then exploded and, and blew all the money that the that um, Garth Pancake was keeping because he doesn't trust him financial I mean, institutions. I After believe recently it. More- <laughs> yeah. I mean. <laughs> what's what's funny is that like all this he goes through this long explanation and then of course she's like nope it doesn't smell right and so he's he sits her down and he tells her the truth he says we've robbed the casino boat and uh because the people who are on the casino boat are gambling and obviously gambling is not moral and so who cares if we're taking all the money of these people who won't be immoral um and also and, and also said, like the insurance company will cover it and they're such a big company that it will only add like one cent one. to everyone's policy, so it's a victimless crime, really. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I think what's funny as well is, uh, you know, there's something that was uh, like kind of um, alluded to earlier, where she donates five dollars to uh, Bob Jones University, which is a uh, a Christian college. Uh, so the word college there is in inverted commas, and. Um, like she gets herself in like the mag like she gets mentioned in the magazine every single week so she's got tons of these magazines uh from bob jones university and so to kind of you know uh kind of uh, i don't know assuage her um gh says that they're going to be donating some of the money to bob jones university and it looks like she's on board um i felt uh, really bad for her in this moment i like (laughs) I got like such a sense of wanting to protect this old woman in this moment because the rest of the film you felt like she could stick up for herself and she was a strong woman but I just felt her being sucked in by all of this bullshit and I was like no no like don't believe him and then I mean when she sort of came to her senses I was so relieved Yeah Yeah, but you also feel sad for her like because she clearly like values this this friendship that she thinks she has with mm-hmm. uh, with the, Tom Hanks's character and yeah it's sad for her to have to like to lose that yeah but i will say this she obviously says you know give all the money back and come to church <laughs> uh, and he's like 
okay, we'll think about it. Um, and then, uh, welcome to Act Three, <laughs> uh, which is the which is really weird because this is kind of the main premise of the 1955 Lady Killers, which is it's hard to kill an old woman, mm. um, and uh, you know we we kind of this is motivated by Gawain, who's like, let's just shoot her and bury her, <laughs> like. That's his solution. Let's just kill her and bury her body and then just take the money and we don't have to go to church. Um, and, you know, there's some dispute over who is going to kill her. <laughs> and so in a scuffle between Gawain and Garth Pancake, um, the gun course. that Gawain is holding accidentally goes off and kills him. Yeah. <laughs> but before this, they also suggest just burying her alive in the walls. Yes. Yeah, which well, I yeah. thought was so dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, to me, that feels like that's meant to be like a, a kind of like something that might happen in an Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, it, it is. It is yeah. a yeah. D- reference to Poe for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, but, but I, I mean, you know, Gawain is the first to die. Yeah, but you, you skipped, you skipped the drawing of the straws, man. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, they draw straws. I mean, yeah. there you go on to. Of course, it's not that Gawain tries, tries you, to uh, tries to beg off based on his. <laughs> Uh, his earlier maiming, which to a certain extent, fair enough. But, yeah. <laughs> but also it's just, yeah. Garth Pancake yeah, again, I'm... just being this weird stick in I the mean, mud. Uh, we then get some wonderful model shots uh, because the, the where they, they dispose of Gawain's body by dropping it over a bridge onto a rubbish barge. And that is a, that's a model that they uh, that they built. Uh, it's like a one eighth size model or something that uh, they throw the bodies into. Uh, we should so say that the barge appears like at the start of the film and mm. throughout the film where they're yeah. disposing of the dirt and so on. Yeah, so they're aware of the the, the kind of the schedule of this barge, which, to be honest, for a small town, <laughs> seems to be getting rid of. They're yeah, generating yeah. a lot of waste. <laughs> I mean, it is. I think it's an indictment of the kind of the the culture today that people are th- just throwing stuff out and it's just getting sent to landfill. I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah. reduce, reuse, recycle. Indeed, that was Ryan the true Reynolds. moral of this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a pro recycling film. That is generally <laughs> apart from obviously bodies. You can't recycle bodies. Um, and uh, we obviously once they've got rid of, I, I feel body, like we're going to get tweets saying you totally can recycle bodies, like using them. <laughs> <laughs> just use your imagination <laughs> i mean the, there was that kid on tiktok who had like a load of bones and people were like sorry what is this um what? i mean if you don't know you know like he had like tons of human skulls and he was like you can buy them cheap oh, no. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he felt he felt the need to advertise this on tiktok for some reason <laughs> Uh, so people were like, "Hold on, this doesn't like what is what's what the hold up?" You know, and a lot of people were like, um, "You know, please cremate me so that no teenager ends up buying my stuff <laughs> and then and then putting it on TikTok or whatever the equivalent will be at the time when I die." You know, like, um, uh. yeah. Uh, uh, as they are getting ready to pack everything up, uh, you know, Garth Pancake decides that he's going to try and run off with all the money. Um, which, I mean, I guess, you know, they, they, they kind of, they didn't want to give him an extra cut because obviously he, you know, had an, had an extra person involved, which is like Mountain Girl. They were like, we just trust Mountain Girl to not, um, you know, tell everybody about our plan and give away the fact that we're robbing a bunch of money. Um, 
you know, and so she is driving the hearse, and as as I mean, yeah, again, this is a this is a very kind of Coen Brothers shot. She's driving a, a Volkswagen hippie van, Darren. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as 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 the back of the van is open, and um, you know, uh, Garth Pancake is there. Uh, he's about to drop the cases that have the money and he starts making faces and she says IBS and then we find out it is not IBS he's being garroted uh, by, <laughs> by uh, the professor uh, yeah I, so, I just want to say like it's 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 refreshing to watch a film where IBS is the central plot point <laughs> and it just I, I'm just I, I'm I have, I'm hoping somewhere out there with IBS feels represented by this movie that, I mean, it's funny because obviously they, they go into the story of how Mountain Girl and uh, Garth Pancake <laughs> met, and it was at an IBS like yeah. singles yeah, it was, uh, camp. It was called like the Irritable, Irritable Bowel Singles. 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 So, yeah. IBS as well. Just, just oh, and they, See, and the, they made the, this big deal about like it was in the Catskills and like all those places in the Borscht Belt are kind of having to branch out to make ends meet because of the <laughs> decline in. <laughs> in that like that whole retreat industry it's just it's a very weird funny digression that i enjoyed <laughs> i mean the Coen brothers uh, you know they can if they wish uh, still come up with a funny joke uh, mm. which i think uh, irritable bowel singles is probably the funniest joke in the film <laughs> um but of course now he has been garroted they also have to kill mountain girl uh, R.I.P. Mountain Girl. And I, I, I do mount- love how they just cut to like th- them dropping a body mm. off the bridge, and, <laughs> yeah. and then they say "Go get Garth" or whatever. So it's just like this really <laughs> yeah. dark punchline. <laughs> yeah. So both of them are dumped off, um, and then it is is again they draw straws, and it is left to the general. Uh, he is going to kill um, Marva Munson while she sleeps, uh, but unfortunately, a cuckoo cock dis- kind of disturbs him. And he swallows his cigarette. He tries to drink water from her uh, glass that has her teeth in. Um, and then he ends up falling down the stairs. He, and, he like, trips over the neck. cat as he's walking back or whatever. It is kind of like the most uh, slapsticky thing in the entire <laughs> film. And it finishes with him basically just breaking his neck and dying. And then cut to, we're on the bridge yep. and they're dumping his body. <laughs> and so... Uh, we understand. We understand the routine. We know what's happening by now. Yep. Uh, and this, of course, then leaves us with just Lump and GH. And GH reasons that Lump will have to kill Marva because if he doesn't do it, then GH will have to do it, and then GH will have to kill Lump and take all the money. Um, which obviously Lump doesn't want to kill the old lady. Um, you know, he he likes her, and he doesn't want to have to kill her. Mm. Um, and then also the fact that GH threatens killing her <laughs> means that he will have to kill GH. Um, so he he put, points the gun that GH has just given him at GH and he pulls the trigger, but there's no bullet in the chamber. Um, and of course, he then decides the best way to figure out whether or not there is a bullet in the next chamber is by inspecting it. And so he looks directly down the gun and then shoots himself in the head. And as he does this, the momentum forces him over the bridge, and he basically disposes of his own body. Um, so that's the most Which is very killing the film. Of him. Yeah, Lump basically because there's no way GH would have been able to lift his body over. He, to dump he'd him. have had trouble. He would have needed some leverage. He basically kills himself and disposes of his own body all in one move. Yep, yeah, uh, um, and obviously landing perfectly on the barge because there's another one. <laughs> yeah. There's another you know, one. <laughs> so many barges, it's insane. 
Uh, yeah, and of course, this is where we get a rare thing in a Tom Hanks film, which is the death of Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks rarely dies on screen. Uh, he died off screen in Philadelphia. He died on screen in Saving Private Ryan. And he died on screen in Road to Perdition. Spoiler <laughs> alert for all of those. Uh, he died off screen in A League of Their Own, but his character died of old age at the age of 87. So doesn't really count. No. Uh, but but this uh, but this is uh, so this is like out of like 30 films. This is only the fourth time his character has like died on screen. It's he's he's like crazy. the anti Sean Bean. <laughs> yes, he just does not. He does not die in in films. Um, and so he is distracted by a raven. Uh, obviously, being a fan of Edgar Allan Poe, he loves ravens. Um, and he kind of just, I don't know, he just like kind of falls over the edge of the bridge. No, and, well, he gets, uh, he get, yeah. A, a, the raven a raven lands on, on a gargoyle's head and the gargoyle's yeah. head falls and hits him on there. Oh, yes. Yeah. And it he, happened so quickly. I was like, okay, I guess he's... He foreshadowed it, Darren. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he... He, he he falls off the bridge and is hung by his own cape. Um, uh, and then once he is dead, his body then falls onto another pod <laughs> because it is a non-stop rubbish barge yeah. um, parade underneath this bridge. Must be um, like a really great job. <laughs> Constantly doing laps of just the south going back and forth. I mean, it's sad because there's just that much rubbish. I mean, come on, people. Yeah, it's you know. not good. So I, not... I watched this with my partner who kind of had no context about it before I made him watch it with me. <laughs> and he so he had no idea it was a Coen Brothers film. And at the end, when it kind of came up with their names, he was like, oh, I was about to say that that felt so Coen Brothers, but they wouldn't have ended it so neatly and so quickly with all the deaths. And I don't know if you guys agree, because I'm not a Coen Brothers. I think I've seen... Inside Lewin Davis and half of True Grit, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> but do do you think that in other Coen Brothers films they wouldn't have made it so neatly tied up with all of their deaths so quickly happening one after another? Uh, I mean, uh, I mean the thing is, like people tend to die in Coen Brothers films. This is the weird thing. <laughs> yes. Like <laughs> they tend to die. It's just a thing that just happens. People like. You know, they joke about how they've killed Steve Buscemi like six different ways <laughs> because every time he's in a, in their films, he just he just ends up dying. I think it's only a Hudsucker Proxy where he just he lives to the end. Otherwise, his characters are always either being, you know, thrown into wood chippers or having heart attacks or, you know, um, so killing off all the characters. But again, I think, you know, this is probably just because that's how, that's the original film. The original film is all the guys who tried to kill the old lady can't kill her. And then she ends up with the money um and that's so yeah i mean if it wasn't a remake i'm guessing they probably would have figured out a way to have tom hanks get away with the money because <laughs> that feels like more of a coen brothers ending is to have somebody actually get away mm. with something um you know rather that rather than just having everybody die um but yeah no it is it is a kind of i guess if it wasn't the template of the original they probably wouldn't have done that as a finish mm -hmm. but i don't know we'd have to i, I think it get Joel and does it does ring kind of true like to the Coen brothers uh you know like people dying quickly uh, and i think it fits the tone of the film as well them dying so quickly and cartoonishly as well yeah i mean yeah because they're all cartoon characters basically <laughs> so the fact that lump shoots himself in the face and his body falls onto a, one of the many many rubbish barges that are going under this bridge it just it just feels like a kind of poetic justice because <laughs> 
you know, they 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 are all generally terrible people. It's very scummy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Lump wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, yeah. Justice for Lump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess he was just slightly less intelligent. Yeah. Um, it, it, they do, like, but... him not wanting to kill, like, <laughs> the old lady was, like, you know, a, a, a spark of humanity and, like, hmm. intelligence there. Yeah, we, we skipped over the the fact that uh, that Gawain has a pang of conscience because he's the one who draws the short straw and can't uh, can't kill Marva because she reminds him too much of his own mother. And of course, we get a flashback to Gawain's like rather dysfunctional childhood. Yeah, yes, with the puppy, which is yeah. Uh, which felt like a waste of time. Like I didn't need the flashback. I'm sorry, no, but like... no, it was. One of many slightly unnecessary. It's yeah, yeah. So having got to the to the end of the of the summary, then not quite, Wait, not quite. Yeah. Because we have we have the epilogue, which is uh, Marva Munson now finding all this money. Um, she goes to the sheriff to tell him, you know, because obviously <laughs> they're very busy now uh, with this robbery happening at the casino boat. And so he goes to say to her, look, I've got I've got all the money, she says, in my basement. Um, a bunch of musicians and a professor who were who have all just disappeared. And, you know, he, she says, remember that professor I tried to show you? And he's like, yeah, sure, and, sure, you know, sure. Yeah. And betwe- uh, between him and his deputy, they're like, OK, this sounds like a, the ravings of a crazy woman. So why don't you just keep this money that apparently you have? Yeah, yeah, and, you've, def- uh, you've definitely you've definitely got it. Yeah, yeah. Just just yeah. keep it. So, it's fine. We totally yeah, believe so I, you. I, yeah, I kind of I kind of like that throughout the film, obviously, the dismissiveness of the sheriff has been set up. And obviously the scene where, um, you know, H W H H W. I've lost G.H. There you go. That's the correct initials. Was hiding under the bed. Obviously, made her look like a crazy person anyway. <laughs> and they they they're sick of tr- getting her cat out of the tree. Um, you know, over these many years, so they just kind of dismiss it all, and they're like, just keep the money. Um, and obviously, she then, you know, gives it away because she's a kind person. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think it, we didn't. I'm like, we did. We kind of didn't need the epilogue, although obviously it is a payoff for stuff that was set up earlier. Yep. Uh, you know, you could just have had a single shot of her looking at the the money and kind of just, you know, you can kind of discern that, she, you know, she's going to give it back to, I don't know, the casino boat or, you know, give it to Bob Jones University because that's obviously what she... I think, you know, she I think the epilogue works, though, because, like, you know, like, they repeat the same shot of her walking through the streets of, back to her house and yeah. she's smiling. She's, just, she's a bit more cheaper than at the start of the film having come from the police station to complain and being dismissed. Yeah. Um, which kind of wraps it up neatly. And then we go to the credits and we have some gospel singing. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot... I We obviously haven't mentioned it, but, uh, you know, uh, following Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, this is another collaboration with uh, T-Bone Burnett um, and obviously uh, Carter Burwell, who has, you know, done the music for the, uh, the, the kind of Coen Brothers for a number of films. Uh, they both kind of throughout the whole film there's kind of like there's kind of like gospel songs that are sung um, and kind of just some kind of spirituals 
Um, and then some of that is mixed in. There's like a there's like a hip hop version um, with featuring like nappy roots, which just kind of merges in one song. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, but we kind of on the on we have the this kind of uh, this gospel song on the uh, kind of going on the outro. Uh, what I do like is that uh, that uh, gospel the uh, the kind of the the what's it called the, the conductor guy the guy who's like he's kind of pointing at the different people and, and bringing in the different kind of melodies and stuff and the different harmonies. Uh, he's very enthusiastic. And I was like, Oh, that's a, you know, it's nice to kind of see him like just kind of pointing at things and singing the different parts and kind of leading the, the choir. Um, you know, very, uh, very fun. Uh, but again, uh, just a kind of weird, like addition is just all this constant gospel music. <laughs> oh, the whole it, film. it ties the whole theme together and, represents i guess the old lady's christianity and so on yeah and they all have those nice shiny gospel clothes whatever i don't know what they're called like smocks uh, you mean you know, the, the choir outfits or whatever yeah yeah the choir yeah the choir smocks that they all wear <laughs> um i think that's what it is it's a smock <laughs> is it not i mean I, um I, I don't use the word smock in my day-to-day I don't know. Well, if you were to wear a smock on to, then you might no. need to use that word. But I mean, it's funny as well, because, uh, again, having seen Respect, there's a lot of that the same kind of like gospel singing things yeah. uh, in that film. So I, I, I bet the, I was like, the smock budget was off the chart in that. <laughs> oh, so it's, 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 I mean, it's its own line in the budget. Smocks. Uh, for Respect, certainly. Yes. I mean, there was there's a whole uh, there's a whole crew that were just making many different uh, smocks of many different colors um throughout the film smock wrangler uh, but yeah. is a credit in the end credits <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh this film obviously was so traumatic to the coen brothers that they took three years off to make another before they made another film and the next film they made they again everybody kind of died apart from tommy lee jones um in that film um and in burn after reading obviously they bring back jk simmons and again pretty much everybody dies in that film too <laughs> So, uh, and if the ending of a serious man is to be believed, there is a hurricane coming and everybody's going to die in that <laughs> as well. So, uh, things have got very pessimistic. In fact, I have a feeling that, like, Inside Lewin Davis is probably one of the only films after this where nobody dies. But um, it's not a happy film. <laughs> no. Oh, Inside Lewin Davis is just literally a man making all the wrong choices. <laughs> it's just so sad. <laughs> Um, but I will save that for my Coen Brothers podcast, which has the ratings of Ethan or Joel. Uh, and I won't <laughs> tell you if either one of those is good or bad. Uh, but we are at the end, so let's get to our judgments on this film. Of course, we only have two ratings. They are T-Hanks or no T-Hanks. Um, and uh, I think we should go to Saskia first for her judgment on this film as a whole. Um, I probably liked it way more than all of you did, but I... I'm not like a movie buff. I just like Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, I would watch it again in maybe three or four years' time when I have already forgotten everything that happened. Again. <laughs> again. Um, and I would probably recommend it to my parents, which, you know, is always a good indicator of whether a film is good or not. So I'm going to give it a T. Hanks, but I know I'm so biased. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is almost as shocking as when somebody gave a league of their own a noty hang. Wow! Uh, so, <laughs> so we'll go to Alistair next. Uh, your your ranking of this film? I'm oh, I'm so, I'm quite torn actually. I think it's a marginal 
tanks, but no uh, tea hanks, but no tea hanks. <laughs> um, sorry, am I breaking the rating system? No, it's you just have you have to pick one. Oh, okay, you can't, you can't say it's, both. It's a. I'm going to go with Sasuke then. I'm going to I'm going to give it a, a, a T Hanks. I hope you don't feel pressured into that answer. <laughs> oh, just, very pressured. Oh, you know, I won't. You know I where I live. Friend you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I caveat with that. I enjoyed it, but I would heavily caveat. Like, I'm I'm not going to claim that other people will enjoy it because I did. <laughs> Uh, well then, on too. Uh, I mean, I assume you're going to have to either agree with everybody here. Or... <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm just going to say. Uh, I kind of going into this movie. I, you know, I avoided it when it came out. I was, you know, a cynical teenager. I'm like, okay, the Coens are doing a like a, a screwball comedy, basically. Like that. Like <laughs> that's not what I want from the Coen brothers. Uh, and watching it this morning, I, I was just. I was really charmed by this film. It's like I think it's kind of borders on being really underrated. I think like a lot of the reception at the time was just came from a place of like yeah, like we we want more dark, more a more darker, serious sort of Cronenberg's movie. And I, this film really works for me. Tom Hanks is really going for it. Like he's chewing up the scenery. He's being oh ridiculous. Oh my goodness, is he? <laughs> uh, it's it's really dark. The ensemble cast, like I I really love them all. It. And I think there's like, um, it's kind of like a, a Greek uh, tragedy comedy to me, like just with the whole thing about dumping the bodies off the barge. And I, I really <laughs> like that motif. It works for me. It's about like, don't be materialistic. Like, don't be greedy. You'll get yours. <laughs> be like the old lady. <laughs> God damn it. We all end up on the barge in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Basically. Yeah. There's a pile of garbage there. We, we all go to the pile of garbage at the end, but uh, you can steal, but yeah, be kind, be nice. Uh, don't be a greedy jerk. Uh, yeah, so T Hanks for sure for me. Uh, I mean, this is the this is a fourth and so far final remake that Tom Hanks has been involved in in his his career so far. You know, the the man with one red shoe, I would say, was not that successful of a remake. Uh, Money Pit, I would say, was an enjoyable remake. Uh, You've got Mail. Uh, was a remake of a play and a musical and a novel and another film. So no way, a lot of remaking that. going on there. Um, and it's but, an incredible movie. Well, yes. Say. I mean, that, and that's the reason why I gave that a T. Hanks. But that's why I'm giving this a no T. Hanks. Because <laughs> there's a reason I had this wrapped in plastic for 10 years and never bothered to watch it. Because it just doesn't like. I mean, you know, I've I've got all I literally have all the Coen Brothers films, as I said, apart from uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is not available on any home media due to it being made by Netflix for some reason. Um, and in, in there are other films, you know, like The Big Lebowski. I've seen that at the cinema three times uh, because it was it's so great. I saw I saw No Country for Old Men, and I think about a week later I went back and saw No Country for Old Men at the cinema again. Because I love that film, because it was kind of uh, amazing. I saw Burn After Reading twice, uh, mainly because uh, with the with the same person, mainly because I saw it once in New York, uh, and the person I, I went to New York with, they fell asleep during it. So when it was back out here, they were he was like, "I fell asleep during that film. Can we see it again?" And I was like, "Yeah, let's go to the cinema and see it again." <laughs> so because I love the Coen Brothers. So, yeah, yeah. So you're um, not against Zany Coens in principle, then? No, I know I know a lot of people who like serious Coens but can't handle Zany Coens. Well, so yeah, and and I, 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 and you know, like a serious man is like an amazing film, um, and 
this is this is none of those things. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you compare it to the other Coen Brothers stuff, it feels like nothing. It feels like it, you know, by the end of the film, you're like a bunch of people died and an old woman got some money. What was the point of this whole film? Like, I almost want it to zoom back out and have J.K. Simmons as his character in Burn After Reading go, what did we learn from this? Like, it's, I, like, you know, it. The, the, the problem is, you know, the, like, you know, the music is so good because obviously T-Bone Burnett and Carter Burwell are great musicians and it looks beautifully shot because you know Roger Deakins is you know a multiple time Academy Award nominated and I think finally won uh, for something um, you know like his cinematography is is beautiful the pacing is fine like you know the Coen Brothers mm. never have a there's never a Coen Brothers film where stuff kind of hangs around too long where you're like what's you know what's the point what, what's the what's going on with this scene I, I found um, I so, found actually it one of the things I would say why it didn't work for me, like why I was so conflicted, was I did find it dragged a bit, despite it being less than two hours. So I, I yeah. have to agree with that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's 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 paced well enough, like compared to uh, I don't know, Bonfire of the Vanities. Like, <laughs> if you want to see a film, if you want to see a film that has no idea where it's going with any scenes and has no idea what to do with characters, then watch that. Um, yeah, you know, I but, appreciate like, it for not being a two and a half hour film. When it doesn't <laughs> need to be, but it's yeah, and yeah, you know, and if you want to see a film that has like performances that have no idea what they're doing, then by all means watch Mazes and Monsters, which is a terrible <laughs> film. Um, you know, so the stuff that Tom Hanks has done in the past that's like obviously you know not as good as this, but like you know, coming off Catch Me If You Can and Road to Perdition and Castaway and The Green Mile, like you know those films are it's like so perfect it's like this just feels like a complete mess ah, that's and... that's the thing i'm not gonna claim that this is good i am gonna say it's fun well i mean even <laughs> then like there's a there's a few there's a few like good gags but then there's then there's also five minutes of marlon wayne's recounting the life of uh john wayne bobbit for us which is and totally like, unnecessary what is what is going on like what is this like i i mean you know like I said, I recently saw Marlon Wayans in Respect, and he was fairly good in that. Mm. But he just feels completely out of place in this. He, film he's kind of riffing for sure. Like he's mm. definitely yeah. Like... And it's just like if it, it feels like there's a dozen of the people the Coen Brothers work with that could have been in that role that would have worked better. Like you could have swapped Marlon Wayans and Stephen Root. I would have preferred to have had Stephen Root for the whole film instead of for just like two scenes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean. I, there's no, there's no way I could recommend anybody watch this film. Like, no. I mean, if we already have a Lady Killers that apparently is better than this, and looking at the cast list for the original Lady Killers, it is stacked. Like, you have oh. Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness and Herbert Long. Oh yeah. Like, why would you need Marlon Wayans? <laughs> well, indeed. Have a film. Well, indeed. And I that... would say one of the things that I remember, one of the few things I remember from the experience of actually watching it, other than I had a good time watching the original, was it was one of those ones where it's like. Oh my goodness, Peter Sellers could properly act when he wanted to. He wasn't just about mugging and doing silly voices, like good as he was at that. Yeah. Like he could play play it straight with the best of them. He it's it's Peter, quite a Peter Sellers revelation. wasn't just about taking other people's ethnicities and colouring his face different <laughs> well, colours. I mean Well right, well right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So but yeah. I mean I just you know, I I think I think this film would have been better off if like Barry Sonnenfeld had had kind of di- had directed it because it feels like it would have been more in his wheelhouse. Mm. 
Um, you know, in the same way that I think Intolerable Cruelty would have been better if, like, Ron Howard had directed it. Um, you know, it just feels like the Coens kind of drifted for, like, six years. Like, mm. they after, after, after The Man Who Wasn't There kind of was unsuccessful, it feels like both of them doubted that they could do anything. And then they made two <laughs> terrible films, and then somebody, like, gave them a copy of a Cormac McCarthy book, and then they were like, oh, yeah, this is what we can do. We can make a good film again. Um, so... Like comparing it to any other Tom Hanks film and comparing it to any other Coen Brothers film, it just it feels like the worst of both worlds. Like, um, and it's weird because I think Tom Hanks, like there are some of the obviously there are Coen Brothers films after this where I think Tom Hanks probably could have worked. I mean, mm. you know, the George Clooney role in Burn after reading, Tom Hanks probably could have done that easily. Like, but it just it just feels like it's a waste of everybody's talents here. You know, like you have someone like Roger Deakins who's probably one of the best cinematographers to have ever lived. Maybe one of the best British cinematographers to have ever lived. Let's narrow it down to that. <laughs> and he's he's just... He's shooting Marlon Wayans following a woman's behind. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Deacon you know, has done worse. I'm pretty sure. It's a long, long list of credits. He has because he did Spectre. But, you know, like, I mean... It looks, it looks, everything looks so nice and it's so well done. But at the at the core, I don't think there's anything to this film. And, you know, and I say that as somebody who has at this point watched, I don't know, 30 something Tom Hanks films. And so it's like, you know, if we're comparing it for other Tom Hanks films, you know, it, it just feels like it's, it's oh, a no, no film. argument there. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many others have you given a no T Hanks? Uh, I think probably only uh, Bonfire of the Vanities and Every Time We Say Goodbye. Damn. Hmm. <laughs> are there well, any, are there the any only... Hanks films, Saskia, that you would give no, no T. Hanks to? <laughs> um, I've not se- I've seen the really obscure ones from the 80s, so I've not actually seen a lot of them. We're planning to go through loads in December. Okay. Um. But so far, you're but, on a. I mean, I I mean probably the Da Vinci Code, but that's <laughs> that's an obvious one, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's in my future, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I mean, but that's also the the you know it's what is based on the books rubbish, so the film can't <laughs> be that good. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't know. People say that the novel of Jaws is terrible, and obviously everybody insists that the film is great. So it is possible. Occasionally, to make a good film alch- a bad cinematic novel. alchemy can happen. But... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, coming up very shortly, uh, you know, aside from obviously Da Vinci Code uh, and Polar Express, um, you know, after that <laughs> you've got like Angels and Demons, and then extreme, extremely loud and incredibly close, and uh, I don't know, like. There's a bunch of films like uh, The Circle and um, Ithaca. You know, like there's some weird films that he's kind of done in the re- recent past. Mm. But I don't know. I don't know what my opinion is going to be like once I get to them. Yeah. Um, oh, know, I don't want to spoil it for future future li- future listeners. You know, like what, what my opinion is going to be. But let's say that this. I don't think anybody in the entire world has ever thought that Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close was a good film. I've heard so, it's um, worth avoiding, and I have followed that advice for myself well, i do yeah. have a random bit of uh of cohen slash hanks trivia <laughs> which i should have mentioned earlier but but still wanted to wanted to crowbar in uh the uh, uh joel cohen i think was credited as a as a writer on bridge of spies so 
Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, so there right. is there is a connection there is a connection and i like that film a lot that is that is definitely one i would recommend to people again i don't want to spoil my uh, verdict <laughs> for that one but i almost fell asleep in the cinema oh while my I was goodness film. so <laughs> so that might be a controversial episode once we get there but yeah. as we're rounding things up uh let's go to any plugs uh we will start with uh on two is there anything that you wish to plug before we go uh yeah just uh just follow me on twitter at the on twos that's spelled t-h-e-a-n-h-t-u uh yeah, I talk a lot about smocks on there. <laughs> and Saskia, is there anything that you wish to plug before we go? No. <laughs> Just your Twitter account, though, surely. <laughs> well, no, because I don't, I don't tweet good stuff. Follow Alistair on Twitter. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very, that's very sweet of you. Uh, well then we'll get to Alistair who I know has definitely got something to plug so uh, <laughs> if you wish to plug away yeah so um, I will briefly mention that I have a podcast about Russian and Soviet films called Russophiles Unite um, but the main thing I want to plug I think because it sort of tangentially ties to Tom Hanks I'm going to try and make it work anyway is I'm also on a um, a track by track podcast on REM called gentlemen don't get caught and the reason it's connected to tom hanks is that it is they were an entity that established their careers in the 80s before becoming absolute megastars in the 90s so that's how i'm making that connection oh, work i was on the edge of my seat i was like how's he gonna pull this off and i was like okay all right i thought maybe tom hanks had directed one of their clips or something like <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, I don't I, think If so. he'd have directed one of their music videos, I mean, that might have been um, interesting. In Obviously, Tom Hanks is well known for being a director. Mm. Directed such gems as... That thing you Larry do. Larry Crown? Well, uh, funnily enough, Larry Crown is going to have two Australian guests on there. So, <laughs> I mean, on two, I don't know if you want to jump in on that and make it like a... <laughs> no, I'm not going to watch much, a, no. a Tom you Hanks could. movie that he directed. No way, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm going to be on the Da Vinci Code app. That's plenty of Hanks for me. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. Yeah, that's this must be, be a rare episode in that none of the guests are Americans, despite the. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. that's actually quite common for this. Oh, okay. I've, you know, I've tried to I've tried to exclude the Yanks as much as I possibly can <laughs> on this thing. No, yeah, uh, no, no, no Yanks uh, talking about Hanks. Yeah. No, this, the, the, the uh, Bonfire of the Vanities didn't have any Americans on either, or Turner and Hooch. Mm. So, uh, I, I think you kind of need an American on every app because, like, he's America's dad and he's the Amer- American everyman and so on. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I feel like, you know, when, I mean, uh, the thing with Australia is obviously that's the country that nearly killed him. <laughs> that's um, right. <laughs> But we all... and for a ba- <laughs> and for a Baz Luhrmann film, come on! But like, oh, okay, sh- like oh, we sh- almost killed him, but the antibodies went to <laughs> develop the vaccine. Come on! <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, thanks to everyone for being my guest here today. Thanks um, very yeah, much you're for welcome, having us, Darren. Darren. Yeah, thank you. I I'm, I'm, I was just here to get you to open that DVD. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> And next time we are going to be stuck in the tunnel.
destruction is everywhere and men are being trapped beneath the soul and nation great and small have now begun to fall 